Hey everybody! Welcome, welcome back to class number four of the Lost Road class. We are plowing our way through this book. I uh, hope uh, everyone was able to keep up with us. I know the uh, reading gets a little uh, dense in places, so I know it can be uh, kind of challenging when, you know, like in the annals section, right, where you've got like this much Tolkien writing and then a whole bunch of uh, of Christopher commentary afterwards. I know it can uh, feel a bit like a slog, um, but uh, I hope that you will find uh, our discussion today will be, will make it worth it. I think looking at this stuff is really exciting and I'm going to try to uh, sort of help us all stay focused on that, on that big picture. Um, Anyway, good evening, everybody. First, let's see, uh, real quick. Um, uh, uh, Mary, yes, I can see your comments. Great. Very glad that that's, that that's working out and continuing to experiment successfully, which is very exciting. So, uh, so very good. Excellent. That's working. Um, okay. Let me start with a quick and now. And first of all, I apologize. I tweet. I totally tried about the chat window, guys. Those of you the chat window regulars know it's yeah. They're still using the Dracula page. I know. I'm sorry. I, I shall. I shall continue to persevere until it gets fixed, uh, which will doubtless happen right before we uh, finish. So, but anyway. I, my, my apologies there. Okay, quick announcements. Actually, pretty much the same announcements as last time, but I wanted to uh, I wanted to draw them to your attention uh, because we have the mid-moot pages uh, now complete with registration links, which are super exciting. And I would also point out the registration link has changed. There was an error in the old registration link, so we fixed the error. Um, so if you got the registration link off, I think of Facebook like a couple of weeks or you know more than a week ago. Um, that link won't work anymore. It's a new one. Uh, but anyway, this is, uh, this is going to be, this is going to be awesome. The Mythgard Mid-Atlantic Speculative Fiction Symposium, uh, affectionately known as Midmoot, uh, expanding from a one afternoon conference to a weekend conference this year. Uh, you can see all the details here. You can click here to register. I hope to, uh, have uh, a bunch of you join us. It will be, uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Um, we're, it's going to be on the weekend of September 24th and 25th, immediately after Bilbo's birthday. And uh, uh, we're gonna be we're gonna be we're 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 pretty excited about that actually. Here, let me let me shift something. Okay, there we go. Now I think perhaps you can actually hang on. Actually, see the there it is. Okay, all right. Yeah. Okay. So anyhow, there it is. Um, so it's uh, uh, this is this is going to be fun. So I said you can click the register now button here, or you can also find it on the Signum page. And here it is, same event, different page, uh, and you can get you can register by clicking this event, or if you're feeling particularly persevering, scrolling all the way to the bottom after all of the uh, scrumptious details, uh, and uh, clicking the register now button at the bottom. So there you are. Um, uh, for, uh, uh, for those of you who were with us last year, you know how much fun it was this year. It's going to be precisely twice as much fun because we're going to be, uh, doing it for two days instead of for one. So I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm glad that, that, uh, that you guys were able, those who came were able to join me last year. I'm looking forward to getting to see even more of you this year. Um, the second announcement is just a reminder. We're now coming up. It's the end of July, so we're now one month away from the beginning of the of the uh, 
uh, of the fall semester uh, at Signum. And just a sort of a reminder, it's the, the perfect time now uh, to apply for our program. If you've ever been thinking about uh, wanting to pursue either your master's degree or a certificate in Tolkien studies or a related field, uh, and if you really want to amplify your street cred as a Tolkien geek, there's no better way, right? Um, but seriously, it's been really fun to watch over the last five years that I've been running this program uh, to see so many people who have been, you know, earnest readers and really good students, really making the transition to becoming scholars on their own. Many of our students have gone on to publish things and to, uh, you know, most of them go and present at conferences, and uh, it's been great. Um, it's been uh, really, I mean, I remember talking to uh, one of my students who had just uh, signed in at a, she, she and I were both attending this conference, and she had just signed in at the conference, and this you know, very famous Tolkien scholar was 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 there at the table helping to check people in, and uh, and he had heard of her because he had read her work, uh, a, you know, a paper that she had that she had gotten published, uh, and she was just kind of blown away about how you know she'd gone from you know being a uh, being a Tolkien geek who you know had all of these uh, scholars' books on her shelves uh, to being somebody who was you know being treated like you know being recognized and treated like a peer uh, by. Uh, uh, by 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 one of them, and it was uh, it was really cool. So anyway, um, uh, just I, it's just a really fun opportunity. So I hope that you will uh, that you will consider the opportunity here in our language and literature program and our Tolkien studies uh, uh, program in particular. Uh, of course, we have other programs as well, but being that this is the Lost Road class, I wanted to make sure to draw this one to your attention. Awesome courses uh, with uh, really great professors. And uh, uh, and it's just 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 another invitation. Uh, I hope that you will hope that you will consider that either. And again, the certificate program I know is really new. It's another reason I wanted to bring it up. Um, we've just really launched that this this summer. Uh, right now, the, this fall, we're beginning to offer that for the first time. So even if you feel like full master's degree is not really necessary for you, uh, the certificate program is something that really that really anybody can do. So, all right. Let's uh, let's dig in to the Lost Road or return to the Lost Road. So we're going to be talking about uh, sort of we're we're going to be returning to kind of the Silmarillion proper today. Um, but uh, oh, hang on, I'm just realizing I forgot to do something here. My apologies. Going to pop up over here. Whoop! All right, I got my secondary text so that I can read the passages and see those and stuff. All right, we're good. Sorry, I forgot to put that up in advance. All right. So anyway, as I say, we're returning to the... We're, we're, we're getting back now uh, after doing The Lost Road and making our little detour to the sequel, right? Uh, the Numenor stuff. We looked at the fall of Numenor. We looked at the... Um, uh, the Lost Road itself and seeing the way in which this Numenor story sort of growing out of these, you know, these, the, the seeds of those, those sort of core ideas and the way that it's sort of fleshing out and growing out and the way that it's connecting, the way that it develops over the course of, uh, of, of the writing of these texts into sort of a fuller and more interesting uh, sequel 
to the the earlier material. And to me, what's really fascinating about that is the way in which, especially, of course, as we can see through The Lost Road and the way The Lost Road develops, um, not by coming forward to the modern world, but by starting in the modern world and going back to it, right? What to me is really fascinating about this stuff is the way that it connects it forward to our world. Rather than, as we saw at the end of the Book of Lost Tales, you know, all of the earlier Silmarillion stuff before the Numenorean sequel came in, Right. Um, with all that stuff, what we saw was just sort of ending the the time of the elves. Right. And the beginning of the fading time uh, for the elves and the dominion of men comes in. And so but but it, but it was just kind of a vague hand waving towards, you know, a world which is eventually going to march into modernity. Right. Oh, yeah, the, the dominion of men comes in and then it's going to be all men from there on out. And, you know, and then we all know how that ends up. Right. Uh, in the 20th century. Right. But um, here, of course, through the Numenor story, and again, we, we see it especially heavily in the, Ross, in the Lost Road, we can see that much more intimate connection that he is developing. And the way in which, therefore, so it's, 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 it's kind of interesting, right? On the one hand, his mythology originally begins with really explicit connections to our world. Right. Um, and I talked about this a little bit before those of you who did the Lost Road class or the uh, the Book of Lost Tales classes with me will remember this much more um, how he is doing, um, you know, what he later calls, you know, talking about the mythology for England. But he's not only just doing a mythology for England, he's doing a mythology of England, like how the British Isles were formed. Right. Um, and their connection with uh, with with the first age, with elvish history, with, you know, their, their roots in the world of fairy. Um so in that sense, right, he is kind of contextualizing, providing this new fantastical context to modern history, especially modern British history, right, through his own mythology. He's, you know, he, he moves away from that. Um, it's, you know, those kinds of myths of origin and explanation are less and less common as he moves along and begins to develop these stories more. But what we see now when he goes to Numenor uh, is that he, now he's returning to the modern era, right? He's once again rooting our modern world and the history that we are sort of standing at the end of, right, back more and more explicitly to Numenor and integrating it more closely with his mythology. And I think that's pretty cool. It's really interesting to watch, right? Um, and one of the things uh, that um, I am coming back around, in case you think I've forgotten, I haven't forgotten that we haven't talked about King Sheev. Um, to me, King Sheev actually is a marvelous illustration of how this works in Tolkien's mind. In, in, in many ways, actually, I would suggest King Sheev as an example. Like if somebody, somebody were to ask me a question like, um, you know, how does Tolkien's creative mind work? Like, how does, you know, how does, you know, how does his storytelling develop and everything? King Sheev is one of the examples that I would actually point to. Not because we can see the sort of the stages of the development of the story exactly. I mean, we get a prose version and a poetic version, but um, but that's not, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is I think that King Sheev is a marvelous illustration of sort of the fundamental penchant of Tolkien's mind. Um, of course, everybody knows that Tolkien was a, a scholar, right? That he was a professor, that he was, that he was a great scholar, especially a scholar of language. Um, but that's kind of usually treated as if it were something that's just kind of 
on the side, you know, like for instance, many people also know that Lewis Carroll was a, was a, was a lecturer in math, right? Um, okay. Yeah. So that's kind of fun, right? That's kind of, that's kind of interesting. And there are some, he does some math. He ma- he makes a few math jokes, uh, in, uh, in Alice in Wonderland and through the looking glass. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, they're relatively obscure math jokes and most people don't get them, but that's okay. I mean, m- most people don't perceive them, but it's fine. You know, it's just, it's just like inside jokes for math people. Right. Um, but, um, but again, most people seem to, I, I mean, I think a lot of Tolkien readers, they're, they kind of like, they know, but they, they sort of think of Tolkien as somebody who like in his day job, right, was teaching all this stuff about language and medieval literature. And in, you know, like at night, he's writing his fantasy. Um, and it's not that, I mean, careful Tolkien readers, of course, obviously can see the connections, right? I mean, this is a guy who studied Anglo-Saxon and Beowulf and, you know, even the, uh, even the most careless reader can't miss the Rohirrim, right? And the fact that they speak, they appear to speak Anglo-Saxon and, and all that stuff, right? So, you know, the connections between what he does in his day job and what he does in his, uh, in his, uh, you know, in his uh, nighttime exercises are, 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 are sufficiently obvious, you know, the, the fact that there are connections and that they exist. But I generally think that a lot of people actually underestimate uh, the way that that works. In particular, people often think about his scholarly studies influencing his writing, right? What he knew about languages influenced his stories with the development of his languages and everything. Uh, you know, all the, you know, the Norse mythology and Anglo-Saxon stuff all appears in his books and influences them. Um, everybody, um, uh, everybody is, 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 um, aware of that stuff, right? But a lot of people don't think about how it goes the how it works the other way, right? Um I don't think at the end of the day, I don't think there's any difference between what Tolkien did in his day job and what Tolkien did in his night job. Um I think that the process is almost exactly the same. And one of the places where I think you can see this really interestingly is in the recently published Beowulf volume, um, where we see his notes, like not in his translation necessarily, though there too, but uh, but especially in his notes and commentary. And you can see many places where he is doing with Beowulf in his notes what he does in his own uh, work. There's a real synergy between his scholarship and his poetic and mythic imagination. Um, and I think, as I said, I, King, King Sheev is one of the things that, uh, um, that I would point to as an illustration of this and kind of how, how this works. Remember Albuin, right, when he was talking to his dad in, the, in chapter one of The Lost Road, um, he was talking to his dad about what he wanted to study. Right. And he was, he, he, you know, philology he had. Right. He's kind of interested in archaeology, but he wanted more than that. Right. He wanted more than bones and stones. He wanted he wanted he wanted flesh as well. Right. Um, which was mythology. Right. So 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 the bones are the philology. The stones are the archaeology. And the flesh is mythology stories. Right. So what is King Sheev? then, right? I mean, we have to notice the elements. I I don't know how many of you are carefully and sort of thoroughly reading um, uh, 
carefully and thoroughly reading Christopher's commentaries, um, you know, as we're going along through here. And I'm not going to ask, I'm not going to judge you. Um, and I know Christopher Tolkien gets, I'm almost tempted to say carried away, that's probably unfair, but anyway, he goes into quite a bit of detail about King Sheev and the medieval tradition of, you know, shield chafing. And, and I was reading this and I was thinking, you know, I bet there are a lot of Tolkien fans reading this whose like eyes might kind of cross a little bit at the whole like is his name Shield or is his name Sheaf and which one is primary the Shield element or the Sheaf element and remember you know as Chris Christopher goes into great detail about all this stuff and it might seem a little pedantic perhaps at times I don't know but um, but I actually really recommend that section and the primary reason I recommend it is not just because I think it's important for you to memorize all this stuff about shield chafing that uh, that uh, um, uh, Christopher's doing, but because I think it helps you to see what are the elements of this story, of this part of this story. Um, what is Tolkien doing when he's writing King Sheev, right? This is not just a story that he made up, right? He's doing scholarship here. But he's not just doing scholarship here. This is also part of his mythology. And it's the interconnection of those two things that I think King Sheev is such a, an amazing, such a fascinating illustration of. I mean, basically, we could look at it this way, right? Um, is he, he's, you know, so is King Sheev an example of him taking a medieval story and giving it flesh? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly what he's doing, right? I mean, he's got the bones and the stones, right? Uh, you know, there's 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 you know all the scholarly evidence that can be adduced about, uh, you know, the sheaf, you know, shield the the legends of shield chafing and the likely history behind it and the different manifestations of these different elements that we can see in different stories and everything. One of the things that we see Tolkien doing in situations like this, as well as in places like in the Two Towers when he's talking about the Rohirrim, as well as in other poems that he writes and things that he does, we see him, uh, we see him making leaps or sort of imaginative connections, which he would never put, which are basically scholarly claims. But it's not scholarship, so it's not officially a claim. So he's not like going on record as a scholar to say, I think that this is what the Beowulf poet meant in this line, right? But he can, and I'm thinking, for instance, of the um, of the great, uh, and I won't go into the full details of it. Uh, Tom Shippey does it way better than I do, but I'm thinking of Tom Shippey's illustration here um, of the line that Hama delivers um, when Hama is deciding to let Gandalf bring his staff into the hall, right? Um, and he said, you know, uh, the, the, the line that Hama delivers there, which he delivers in modern English, is essentially a paraphrase of a, of a contested line in Beowulf that, you know, there are different theories about what it means. And so by putting, by having Hama say what he does, he doesn't cite it. You know, it's not a discussion. It's not scholarship, right? It's just a story, right? He's just given this line to this guy. But you can see Tolkien basically kind of implicitly making a claim. Like this is, this, you know, this is clearly what he, what he thinks that line means, right? And, but Tolkien was an extremely careful scholar. Um, I was just rereading on fairy stories this morning uh, and was reminded of this, you know, hearing him, uh, Tolkien, talk about how, like, he just, he hasn't read nearly enough to claim to be an expert on fairy stories, right? And it's like, okay, his standards are really, really high, but, um, but, but they were honestly very, very high. 
he didn't have enough hard evidence. He just had like his own gut, his own intuition and his own imagination. Right. Um, but he like had convictions about, you know, uh, opinions and convictions about various, uh, you know, contested things. What did this really mean? What was going on there in that passage? What, what, you know, was the poet really thinking and all of these other things. Right. Um, and he puts it into his fiction. Um, because it's just a story, right? He can, he can, he can afford to kind of play there. But again, what he's doing is again, he's taken the bones and the stones, right? The evidence that we have from archaeology, the you know, the all the philological, and he's 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 giving it flesh, right? So one thing that we get in the shield and uh, the King Sheev story is a version of the shield chafing story, um, which tries to sort of get at the. Uh, the the you know sort of the legend behind the legend right one of those stories that the Beowulf author has probably heard and is kind of drawing on right in order to say the very brief things uh, that he says um, uh, uh, you know about about shield chafing yet yeah, Tom Hillman says I'll take his guesses over other people's certainties I I, I usually feel the same way Tom certainly when it comes to uh, to to the Beowulf and Anglo-Saxon stuff. So again, so that's one way to look at what he's doing in King Sheep, that he's taking all the these sort of medieval facts and theories and concepts and ideas and he's giving them flesh, right? He's he's embodying it within a story, within his own within his mythology, right? So that it it, it becomes real. Remember Alboin's desire to go back and hear how how uh, you know the men of that culture really spoke and what they really said. In his stories he does that. Right within his, it's like we're 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 walking the lost road, right? Um, we are getting to hear what. And no, remember, this is why it's important that it's an alliterative verse as well, right? Even the verse form itself is an attempt to make that that nod towards hearing how it would have sounded, right? Um, it's just sort of a thought experiment, right? Just an imaginative experiment, but very deeply rooted in his scholarship. So again, so that's the one side: take the bones and stones and add flesh. The other side is right. You know, you could also say that he's taking his own story, his own mythology, right? The story of Numenor and giving it bones, right? Uh, you know, he's, he's got the story of the fall of Numenor and he is attaching it to real stuff, real philology, real archaeology, right? It's, 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 it, 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 uh, there are bones and stones there and he's, he's got a bunch of flesh, right? And he fits the flesh onto this pre-existing skeleton. Um, he, he has his own mythology and he, through King Sheev, ties his own mythology to reality, and that's pretty cool too, right? Um, so anyway, I, it's 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 this is you know again, King Sheev is only one example of many examples um, of this kind of thing. Again, I, I don't think this is like a thing Tolkien kind of indulged in occasionally. I think this is just how he thought. Um, I am more and more convinced that, in a sense, you know, there was some criticism of Tolkien. Um, you know, when he there, there, there was a lot of kind of eye rolling. And, uh, you know, when Tolkien published The Lord of the Rings, right, a lot of his colleagues who had been expecting him to come out with, a, you know, a great thick philology textbook, which he never wrote. Right? He never published like the big book um, of Germanic philology, which a lot of people were quite expecting him to 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 produce. Right. But he did produce it. 
it's called the Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, the Lord of the Rings is his scholarly output, and it's it's not a substitute for a scholarly output. It's not an alternative. I mean, I guess it's like an alternative mechanism, um, but it is. It embodies his scholarly imagination because his scholarly imagine it was. He was a poet, and he approached scholarship like a poet, you know, with this poetic, mythic imagination. Um, and it's, I think, the ultimate sort of embodiment of almost, of most of his, uh, of his ideas and theories. Um, I, I, I don't know of very many subjects that Tolkien was really interested in as a scholar, that he really dug into and studied as a scholar, that don't come out in his stories, right? Um, Anyway, so I, I think in the end he produced really quite a bit of scholarship. It's just not in the form that most scholarship is is uh, is manifested in. But that's okay. I think that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, yeah. So Marie, uh, Mary, exactly. Uh, uh, he does in King Sheev bring the everyday world, our world, like the sort of the mundane, the bones and stones, right? The history of our world uh, and his mythology together. Um, I wish we could go through and read all of King Sheev and talk about it line by line. I talked about it a little bit more in my uh, Tolkien's poetry class and uh, uh, within our within our Tolkien studies program. Um, we need to get to the Silmarillion stuff tonight, so I'm only going to look at one passage. Um, but um, but I think it's a pretty cool passage. This is towards the end. So now, uh, the boy, right? The mysterious boy who shows up in the boat. Um, has just sort of appeared to them and they've taken him as king, right? What I'm interested here to look at is um, where does it go? What is the sort of the effect, the consequence? Words he taught them, wise and lovely, their tongue ripened in the time of Sheev to song and music, secrets he opened, runes revealing, riches he gave them, reward of labor, wealth and comfort, from the earth calling, acres plowing, sowing in season, seed of plenty, hoarding in garner, golden harvest for the help of men. The hoar forests in his days drew back to the dark mountains, the shadow receded, the shine and shining corn, white ears of wheat, whispered in the breezes where waste had been. Uh, by the way, it's, I, I hope, uh, I, first of all, remember that there are two rules about Tolkien's poetry, right? Rule number one, so these are these are my rules, by the way, uh, my personal rules for Tolkien's poetry. Rule number one: never skip the poetry. Rule number two: always read the poetry aloud. Right? When you do hear, when you do read the poetry aloud, and you can you can hear it, um, what you can hear the rhythm, right? Hear hear the rhythm as I was reading it. Notice it's a different rhythm. It's not a syllabic rhythm, right? It's not iambic, right? It's not dun 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 dun. dun. Um, Tolkien does that really well. He loves those kinds of rhythms, but that's not the rhythm of this poetry. This is alliterative poetry. Um, so there are a certain number of beats per line that you can hear, and a lot of his breaks. And there's a there's a sort of pause in the middle, and you'll notice that he has um, created that, right? He's facilitated that by usually, or very frequently, no, usually, in fact, almost always, ending sentences in the middle of a line instead of the end of a line, right? Um, because he wants to, he's prompting the reader to pause there at that moment where they're supposed to pause at the cesura. Um, the way that the rhythmic structure of Anglo-Saxon verse is just if, very simply four beats per line, two or three of them alliterate. It's the simplest possible 
explanation of alliterative uh, rhythm, right? Um, and you'll hear them come out talking is really good uh, at structuring his, uh, his language at that, uh, at that rhythm. Um, okay. So, um, what do we see? What, what, okay. Let's, let's, let, let's keep going. This is only half the passage. Okay. Well, back up a little bit and then keep going. The hoar forests in his days drew back to the dark mountains. The shadow receded and shining corn, white ears of wheat whispered in the breezes where waste had been. The woods trembled. Halls and houses hewn of timber, strong towers of stone, steep and lofty, golden gabled in his guarded city they raised and roofed. In his royal dwelling, of wood well carven, the walls were wrought. Fair-hued figures, filled with silver, gold and scarlet, gleaming hung there. Stories boding of strange countries, were one wise in wit, the woven legends to thread with thought. At his throne men found counsel and comfort, and cares healing, justice in judgment. Generous-handed his gifts he gave, glory was uplifted. Far sprang his fame over fallow water, through northern lands the renowned the renown echoed of the shining king, Sheev the mighty. Um, James, yeah, I think the woods are trembling for fear of being cut down uh, 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 for the wheat. And by the way, um, uh, in here, as uh, as in almost everywhere in British literature, corn means wheat. Um, when whenever you come across the word corn, it, certainly in Tolkien's writing, certainly in medieval writing. Corn comes from the New World, like what we call like ears of corn uh, comes from the New World, maize. That that's a New World thing. Um, so whenever uh, whenever like this is the same, like this is true throughout, for instance, the King James New Testament, right? Whenever it says corn, um, it it means wheat or grain. Any kind of grain was called corn generically. It's a pretty generic term. Uh, so. Uh, um, so anyway, so yeah, that that's actually a synonym. Shining corn, white ears of wheat um, are just two different two different uh, terms for the same for the same thing. Um, uh, yeah, exactly, Marie. That's why you get uh, the 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 word barley corn. Exactly, a, a barley corn is just a, a corn of barley, right? Um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. So anyway, okay. Sorry, just small small uh, uh, philological side note there. Um, uh, good. So what do we? What do we see here? What does he emphasize about Sheev and the effect Sheev has on the people? And how do we see this fitting? Um, yeah, Tom says, uh, by starting with Sheev's singing, he suggests that Sheev sang all this prosperity and good fortune into being, even though the text doesn't make that connection uh, explicitly. Yeah, he sang of leaves, of leaves of gold, and leaves of gold there grew, Tom adds. Exactly, exactly. Um, it is really fun there. No, I mean, I love th- where he starts. Words he taught them wise and lovely. Their tongue ripened in the time of Sheev to song and music. Um and yeah, Tom, it does, there is an, there is, you're right, almost the implication that these other riches and uh, glories and beauties come and abundances come from that, that basic thing, right? I mean, on the one hand, it's, uh, it's, it's just like a very Tolkien thing, right? Um, that, uh, I mean, who else but Tolkien would emphasize, uh, he enriched their language with wonderful new words, 
right? I mean, like, who else would think that way when talking about, like, the effect that the the wise, uh, uh, learned and benevolent new king had, um, you know, they, you know, other other story writers might content themselves with saying, you know, he passed many just laws and and, uh, uh, you know, the people lived in great prosperity. But no, no, no. Step one, he enriched their language, man. It was great. Right. The, it, yeah. So that was uh, that was very cool. Exactly. Yana, he is he is a uh, a giver of gifts. Um, and yes, Marie, you're right. Uh, Sheev, being this kind of a generous king, fits the medieval model of what a king should be. Yeah, his 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 he, he's not just a ring giver. Right? He doesn't just give treasure. Um, he gives wisdom and loveliness, right? And not just loveliness, like the power to make lovely things. That's his first gift. Secrets he opened, runes revealing, right? Um, he opens secrets to them, and these other things do seem, at least, Tom, as you say, by implication, to flow from that, right? Um, all these other, James, exactly, civilized things, right? The, he uh, uh, improved their agriculture, right? In their time, they uh, they cleared more land and they grew better crops. And, um, uh, you know, the riches he gave them, he doesn't just import treasure, right? He doesn't just come loaded with a, with a you know, a hoard of treasure from, you know, some other kingdom or something like that, right? Riches he gives them reward of labor, wealth and comfort from the earth calling, right? He teaches them how to grow better crops. They, 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 they become, they make themselves rich through his wisdom, not through conquest or, uh, or through, uh, uh, again, the, the sort of the, the, uh, the, the seizure of treasure or anything like that. Um, uh, good. What else? What else do you notice? Oops. Whoa. Way forward. Hang on. There. Okay. Sorry. Um, what else do you notice? Generous handed, right? Yes. He's generous handed. Does this remind you of anything else? Can you think of anything else in Tolkien's works that kind of sounds like this? Good, Josiah says it's like uh, the Entwives uh, in uh, the later mythology. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the description of the Hall sense does sound like Meadowseld Marie. I agree. Yeah, James was thinking the same thing. Um, the King Under the Mountain. Yeah, exactly, Arthur. Good. Yeah, the way in which... Um, the, and I think that especially at the end of The Hobbit there, that sense of, you know, I'm thinking of the, the, the song they sing in Lake Town, right? About how the entire region will be blessed and enriched when the king uh, beneath the mountain returns. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of the prologue to the Fellowship of the Ring uh, concerning hobbits, right? Uh, uh Right. Remember those bits describing Hobbit architecture and language and stuff like that. And it talks about how they, you know, like the art of building they learned from the Dunedain. Right. This is a this this is a pattern we see uh, throughout Tolkien's works. Right. Um, lesser peoples gain wisdom from the great peoples. Right, who teach them? Um, the Dunedain get things from the elves, and the Dunedain pass things on to the hobbits. Right, um, so King Sheev, who seems to come from, you know, a superior civilization, brings wisdom, and now his wisdom enriches the people, 
their language first, right? Their agriculture and their building next. Um, so yeah, so we, we can see how all of these things are being raised. And of course, you may remember what is something like a reference to this, not this poem necessarily, but this concept, which is the stories in the Akalabaith and the references also in Appendix A uh, of the Lord of the Rings to the reaction to the Numenorians by the men of Middle-earth when the Numenorians first return to Middle-earth and encounter the wild men of Middle-earth who think they're like gods. And what do they do? They teach them agriculture. They help them clear the land. They, um, they are, you know, benevolent teachers uh, to the, the, uh, the, the wild men who either had never learned or had forgotten uh, these other techniques, right? So in King Shiv, that's being kind of taken out of that larger history of Middle-earth context, but it's being brought into our historical context, right? And that sh- this myth of shield chafing, the story of, sh- of shield chafing, which is sort of the centerpiece of the opening of Beowulf, um, becomes, t- you know, ne- so wh- who was shield chafing? How was it that this foundling was able to establish himself as a king and, and was so great and had all these legends told about him? Um, easy, right? Uh, he was a Numenorian, presumably, or something like a Numenorian, or or one of the Numen. I mean, it's not exactly clear where the sheave where the sheave boy comes from in the poem, right? It's never fully explained, but it seems fairly clear um, that he is, uh, in some sense, um, uh, a Numenorian. Right. Good. Josiah is recalling uh, Aragorn's proof of kingship, thinking of the lines at his throne. Men found counsel and comfort and cares healing. Good, Josiah. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking about um, uh, the the the, you know, the hands of the king being the hands of a healer uh, and that association there. That's good. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah, Sharon has a great question. I'm not sure how to answer that, uh, Sharon. Sharon is saying she's heard of fallow fields, uh, but what is fallow water? Glory was uplifted. Far sprang his fame over fallow water. It is a really interesting uh, uh, metaphor. Um, I mean, I call it a metaphor because it's not you. It's not an adjective you can just apply to water, right? I mean, fallow, like it literally means to to leave a field idle, like not to sow it, right? When you when you leave a field fallow, it means you're like giving the, the, the soil there a break for a year, right? You're not, you're, not, you're not growing crops there for that year, so you leave it fallow. Um, well, the water is technically always fallow, as one really never sows the water, right? You just, just never plant crops in the water. Um, but um, I, <laughs> Tom says, not now you can. It's true. The Numenorians probably could. Yeah, good point, good point. Um, but so so I, again, I, I I take that to be a metaphor. Therefore, obviously, it's not a literal description; it's a metaphor. So, fallow in what sense? Margaret Joyce suggests because it's empty and goes on along. So it's 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 empty like an empty field that's been left that's been left fallow. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, Sharon, absolutely, it does. I mean, it's 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 not only um, not only does it alliterate in that line. The word fallow is the, alliter- the 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 third beat of the four beats is like the alliterative keystone of each line. Um, it's you know so far 
sprang his fame over fallow water. Far, fame, fallow, water are our four stresses in that line. The third one is always the one that, that sets the alliteration. Um, so that's always kind of where, if you're not sure at the beginning of a line where it alliterates, you kind of peek forward, right? Um, like gold and scarlet, right? Well, we could be alliterating on the G or on the S, right? Which one is it? G is the winner, right? Because gleaming is our third beat. Gold and scarlet, gleaming hung there. The fourth one is not supposed to alliterate um, on purpose. The first, one of the first two can, or both of them. Um, but it's the third one, which is always the key. So that's where you can always hear it. You know, hewn, steep, guarded, royal, walls, filled. You know, those are, oops, darn it, I did it again. Those are all the, um, the you know, you, you can sort of see those and, and that's what it that's what it pivots off of. So anyway, so Sharon, it's not just that it's an alliterative word, it's the alliterative word in that line, right? Um, so it's clearly, it's clearly of, uh, of, of significance there. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, good. All right. Um, yeah, Marie and Alyssa House Thomas are both thinking of uh, the, 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 the fact that the, it's derived from a an Old English color word, fayalu, um, which means something like pale. Yes, but that's like bonus content, I would say. I mean, I can't think that Tolkien's not imagining that word ima- metaphorically as well. Um, I mean, of course, Tolkien does sometimes use modern English words in like their throwback sense, right? Thinking of the Anglo-Saxon word that they come from. Um I mean, I, I do think you can often see Tolkien kind of deploying not only a modern word, but like its etymology when he's choosing a word, when he's using it. Um, so would that um, um, would that have um, um, would it have that sense? Yeah, but I don't think it would only have that sense. Um, because I think the metaphor is a really interesting one. Um, yeah, because see, yeah, see, exactly, Marie, it's not just literally feel that we didn't plant water, right? Um, it's empty water, desolate water. Um, you know, the, notice the, 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 the contrast, right? Far sprang his fame over the fallow water. So we have this contrast between, like, the fecundity of his fame, right, which is springing and spreading and growing, and, and the water itself is fallow. So it's like normally that fallow water would be an inhibition, to the spreading of fame. But his fame, King Sheev's fame, was so great that it spread, that it sprang even over the fallow water, right? So again, I think that the metaphor works um, works in that way too. Um, anyway, okay. Um, I don't want to get too, too bogged down. We could talk about this line for line. And it's exactly this temptation. That's exactly why I didn't put more of the poem up, up on slides, or I knew I, knew I would... Uh, uh, I would be focused there. One last thing then, and we'll leave King Sheev behind for now. Um, look at where he takes the story, right? I mean, just even in these passages that, that we're looking at here, um, notice, remember back to the fall of Numenor, that, you know, the, 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 stuff in, the stuff in chapter two of part one. Um, not the Lost Road stuff so much, but the fall of Numenor stuff. Um, Notice how, the implica- by implication, King Sheev is showing a shift 
in that Numenorean story. We got funeral boats, right? We got funeral boats way back in the fall of Numenor material, right? But you'll remember the funeral boats were on the whole a bad thing, right? Um, that is, they were associated with not fecundity and growth and, and richness, but with a kind of sterility, right? Remember, these were the, the, the survivors of Numenor who still had the Numenorean hang-ups, right? Who still had the Numenorean perspective. And so they were still fixated on death, right? Still building huge tombs, uh, still doing elaborate funeral stuff. And their knowledge of the true West had diminished to the point where they had these, remember these myths about like the land of shades off to the West. And so that's where the funeral boat thing came from, right? We're sending our, uh, you know, we're sending our dead off to like the land of, not the undying land, but like the undead land, right? Uh, not exactly undead, but anyway, you see where I'm going with this, right? That land of spirits uh, that we were talking about. King Sheev puts a quite different spin on the thing, right? Um, I mean, you do get the sense he's come in this ship, right? And when he dies, they put him back in a ship and send him back, right? And that does give you the kind of vague sense that they don't really fully understand who he was and who he and where he came from, right? But yet it's not, they're not in the same place that the Numenorians who were sending out funeral boats in the fall of Numenor are in, right? Um, so again, notice how we have this, I don't know if you call it a shift or if you'd call it like an alternative um, story, basically, of not the sort of continuation and sort of stagnation of Numenorean culture that we got and that we saw, remember, we saw that persisting in Middle-earth such that the, the Last Alliance story is significant because it's a deviation from it. Like, even in Middle-earth, post-fall of Numenor, among the Numenorean survivors and the other men with whom they've mingled, um, most of them are still pretty much headed south. Not, okay, not literally south, metaphor. Headed downhill, right? As I just shift to a different metaphor. Um, uh, again, stagnation, moral corruption, but, but there are some good people as well as bad among the Numenorean outcasts, right? And among them was uh, Agaldor, I mean, uh, Emroth, I mean, Elendil, right? And, uh, and Gilgalad. So again, that was, a, that was a, an exception to the rule story at that point. With King Sheev, we're beginning to see maybe a shift in that, right? Um, uh, <laughs> Margaret, I would not have thought that. <laughs> Talking about King Sheev and sending him back where he came from, Margaret says, just like Mary Poppins. Exactly like Mary Poppins, Margaret. That's you've absolutely you've you've hit the nail on the head there. I never would have made that connection, but it's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and everyone's life has been enriched, right? And all the family are fly. So yeah, exactly. Just imagine all the people of this, uh, you know, of this, uh, of this, of this Nordic kingdom, you know, flying kites on the shore uh, while King Sheev's funeral boat goes out. And I think you've pretty much got it. Um, good, good. Okay. Let's go back to, uh, <laughs> Margaret was just thinking exactly the same thing about the kites. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's move on to the Silmarillion stuff. We're not going to forget King Sheev entirely, but, uh, uh, but let's move on to the Silmarillion stuff. I have, uh, called, I've titled this class prepping the Silmarillion for publication because we have to remember that's what seems to be going on. So let's recap. 
Um, and I, I recap especially for the benefit of people who haven't done the other four volumes with us, um, but I hope it will be fruitful even for those of us who have, uh, for those of you who've been with me the whole time. Look back, overview, right, of the development of the Silmarillion material. We begin with the Book of Lost Tales, and you remember the conception, the, the, or the conceit, rather, of the Book of Lost Tales is the one human guy, the one human mariner, who, uh, fi- who was originally named Ariel, and then later on he's Alfwina, and let's not worry about that, but anyway, he's still a human mariner who finds his way to Tol Arisea, who finds his way to Elvenholm. And in Elvenholm, a place where he doesn't really have any business in being, he hears... he he here's the stories from the elves, right? And they tell him story after story, uh, which goes through, but we, throughout those stories, we're continually, um, we're continually returning to the frame where we have Ariel, the, or Alfwina, the, the, the human mariner, um, him interacting with the elves and getting them to tell him the story of their history. Right. Um, and so that first, that his first impulse um, of how to do the mythology, right? How to pres- how to package the mythology is in this form: a series of stories set within that frame. Now he abandons this; he leaves that behind. And as I've said before, what did he do after that? Epic poetry is what he did after that. That is, he he, f- for a time, abandoned the entire project of telling the whole big, huge story, right? Of giving the entire overview of the mythology, and instead sort of indulged his interest in particular ones of the great tales, right? He really wanted to dig into the Turin Turambar story more, right? Which he'd already, which had already been growing in his mind for a long time. Read Verlin Flieger's Kulervo volume, which was just published last year, if you're interested to see where that came from and how that grew, right? But so he's so he writes the alliterative uh, uh, Children of Hurin, and then the Lay of the Children of Hurin, then he writes the Lay of Lathian, right? Well, he starts others, and, uh, you know, he's going to do a Fall of Gondolin one, and he's going to do a, a kinslaying one at, at, at uh, Alqualande, and then he's go- going to, um, uh, and then, but then he gets completely drawn in to the story of Baron and Luthien, and gets further in that one than he gets in any of the others. And Carita, you're right, it does give us a nice glimpse into his special favorites, right? You can tell which stories really moved him most, uh, those ones that he spent most time with and came back to. Um, so he tells these big stories, kind of leaves the rest in the background. Then, as we saw, he sh- in the last volume, in, in our previous class, in the, in the Shaping of Middle-Earth class, uh, he this quite odd kind of shift happens. Um, the, 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 the second step we might have been able to guess, right? I mean, you know, if, if, if you had read no Tolkien except the Book of Lost Tales, right? And someone told you where he's going to take this from here is going to be epic poems of the major stories, you would have been like, okay, yeah, I can totally see that, right? I mean, already in the Book of Lost Tales, we had the story of Turin Turambar, right? Set within this other thing and set next to these other stories. But, and so the idea that he would take those stories and just kind of zoom in and sort of shove the others aside, you know, that makes sense, right? The third movement, right? The second shift, not quite so easy to foretell, I think, right? Yeah, let's, okay, the next step from epic poetry is plot summary genre, right? Let's instead back up and let's, not tell it 
in a Lost Tales frame, right? Let's not do whole in-depth epic stories. Let's do a summary overview, a plot summary of the whole thing. And then let's develop that plot summary and make that a thing, right? The plot summary genre, which becomes the new Silmarillion, right? That was the move that he did around 19, you know, around 1930 in the early 30s, what he was working on while he while he was writing The Hobbit. Um, my question now is, what's the attraction of the plot summary genre? I mean, why do that? Again, the, the epic poem thing makes sense, right? I mean, you're talking, that makes sense. Why plot summary? Right? I mean, it seems a little soulless, Compared to the earlier version, I mean, there's, there's a lot more meat in the epic poetry stuff, or in the even in the Book of Lost Tales, right? Be like, what we really, what this story really needs is more brief, objective synopsis description, right? Just kind of hitting the high points briefly and going on through, right? Um, what is the attraction of the plot summary genre? Um, organization suggests. Uh, uh, Margaret, tidy and organized, says Carita. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Marie says, you can get a really long sweeping story contained that way. I agree, Marie. Though, um, containment is not exactly an end one would have guessed Tolkien would be going for, right? Or like, why would you, why would he rank containment above you know, other things. Uh, containment didn't seem normally to be what he, uh, what he was going for. Um, but, uh, uh, anyway, um, we'll come back to this. I'll give you my answer. Anyway, sort of partial answer to the question about what is the attraction of the plot summary genre. Um, cause I think there is more attraction to it, uh, than might sort of seem at the surface. And then, of course, having done the plot summary thing, right, which is the sketch and the quenta. Again, if you're reading Christopher Tolkien's notes, capital S, when he just says capital S or when he just says capital Q, he's referring to the sketch of the mythology and the quenta or the quenta Noldorinwa um, that were both written around 1930, uh, 1930, 1933. And the sketch is the first thing that he just, it was literally a plot summary. And it was as short as he could make it, which is not always that short. Uh, he did kind of get carried away in some places and do more than just pure plot summary, but it's really just designed to be a sketch overview of the plot of the whole mythology. And then he began to expand it. Uh, and that's the Quenta. So that's S and Q in, uh, in Christopher Tolkien's notes. Um, and then he expands on that with more stuff. Right, he writes the first draft of the Annals, the Annals of Valinor and the Annals of Beleriand, year by year, breaking down the story, integrating all of these stories which were being told separately originally in the Book of Lost Tales. Right, um, but now sort of showing how they all work together. Right, while Turin was doing this, what was Tuor up to, and all that kind of thing. Right, we we, we can see um, how all that stuff works together. Um, he wrote the Embarcanta, which we talked about last time in the Shaping of Middle Earth. Um, the Embarcanta, which is like an explanation of the of the world and the cosmology and the geography. Right? He was doing maps and sketches of maps at this time, trying to lay everything out. Um, so, certainly, uh, uh, Mary, I think it's fair to say he's attempting to clarify things uh, in his mind. I think we we can certainly see 
that 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 kind of happening here. Um, and yeah, Nick Morazzo says the summary was his own homework in a buildup of another new project. See, Nick, that's a really fun theory, right? I I, I could totally buy that. In fact, if uh, like if we stopped at the shaping of Middle Earth that would have kind of been my theory, right? Okay, he's just, he's just wanting to work all this stuff out, right? This is how he thinks, right? So he's got all this clarified, and from all this, with all this stuff worked out, now he can do a really bang-up, you know, whatever, like, the final form of the story would be, right? But no, because now now we begin to, to back to the Lost Road content, the you know, the later annals of Valinor and Beleriand that we read for today. It's pretty clear from the evidence that Christopher Tolkien gives that what he's doing is polishing for publication. Right? It's publication time. It's go time with the Silmarillion right here. Right? As Christopher emphasizes, practically no time elapses. He's just done the early annals of of Valinor and Beleriand that we talked about last time in the Shaping of Middle-Earth class. Um, Now he he redoes versions of them. He does new versions of them. And Christopher mentions that they're written quite neatly. He gets carried away in some places. He gets, he gets to writing fast in some places. But but the, the, the manuscripts suggest that he was writing, at least began, writing fair copy. He's not just... These are not his own notes. His own notes. You can tell his own notes because they're practically illegible. Um, these are not his own notes. He's writing this for presentation. He's going to send this to the publisher. And he does send this to the publisher. We know the publisher got some of this material. And this is in the period of time. He's th- he's, he wants to publish this stuff. We know that he wants to publish this stuff. Um, remember when, or I say remember, if you've ever read uh, Humphrey Carpenter's biography, for instance, you know, you'll know that he was wrangling back and forth. It's also in the letters. Um, he was wrangling back and forth with publishers. Uh, wanting to get the Silmarillion published. He tried to make the publication of The Lord of the Rings contingent on the the simultaneous publication of the Silmarillion. And when... um, See, I, I bet when most people read Carpenter's biography or read the letters and hear people talking about how in the early 50s Tolkien wanted the Silmarillion to be published, when people read that... When they hear the Silmarillion, they think about the published Silmarillion that we have, right? As if Tolkien had the published Silmarillion that we know in manuscript form and he was waving it around to the publishers, right? Publish this along with the Lord of the Rings. That's not what he had. That's not what he was sending to the publishers. When he was wanting, when he was telling Alan and Unwin, um, I insist that you publish the Silmarillion along with the Lord of the Rings, that you do them all as one unit, which is what he wanted. This is what he was giving them. This is what he had in mind. This is what he had. This is the, so at the time of the writing of the Lord, when he sits down and he's doing the Lord of the Rings, this is what the Silmarillion is. Okay. And again, the manuscript evidence is suggesting that he's revising and prettying it up in order to be, to be able to send it to the publishers. So Nick, this is the the really interesting thing, right, is that I totally would be also thinking, like you were saying, maybe he's just, he's just working out his ideas, right, for his own benefit. No, no, he was doing it for publication. The Annals of Beleriand are, are there, and, and, and Valinor, this is, 
he wants to publish this. This is this is this is public material, right? He's going to run with this. Um, so we have to keep this in mind for this week and the next few weeks of discussion as well. Keep reminding yourself: this is the Silmarillion, right? In you know 1937, this is the Silmarillion. Still in the 1940s, this is the Silmarillion, right? Because he's been writing the Lord of the Rings. He's been working on this stuff um, uh, in that time. He gets to to tinkering with it after he finishes the Lord of the Rings. Um, but uh, but this is uh, this is uh, this is it. Um, uh, Brian asks, did he ever consider publishing more narrative stories from the Silmarillion tradition, like Baron and Luthien and the Fall of Gondolin? If he had if he had not had the Silmarillion already written when The Hobbit became a success, would he have told the Silmarillion stories in a different way? Well, Brian, he did. In a sense, I mean, again, that's what the second phase was. Remember, when the publisher first came to him for a sequel, right? I uh, said, love The Hobbit, give us more. He's like, oh, I got more for you. Right? And remember what he sent them? The Lay of Lathian. The epic poem version of the Baron and Luthien story. Right? It's like, oh, I got a great story. Right? You'll love it. This one's even in poetry. Right? And I mean, I can... The publisher was very generous. Right? Yeah. But I, I can imagine there was some quiet face palming going on at Alan and Unwin when they got the Lay of Lathian. Um, and what he really wanted was another Hobbit. Right? And remember, this is, this, it's in that context also that he sent them the first couple chapters of The Lost Road. Right? That was going to be uh, that was going to be his other thing, but he sent him the way of Lathian as well. Um, so he tried, he tried that, well, what he had of it, right? Um, that is what he had of those stories. So, just framework, keep in mind: this is the Silmarillion, and this stuff is going to be published. I'm not saying it's totally finished, right? He's still tweaking it, he's still working on it. There's stuff that still needs to be developed. Um, it's not totally ready for press yet. Um, but this is um um this is where uh he 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 was going right this is what he had when he talked so all those times go go back and read his letters right and when you know in the late 30s and early 40s he he whenever he says the silmarillion this is what he's talking about because this is what existed at that time okay so with all this stuff in mind let's now go to the text and i want to be thinking more about what exactly this is. Like, if this is the Silmarillion that he wants to publish, what kind of a story exactly does he think he's writing? Um, again, I, w- I want to kind of come back to this, like, plot summary genre thing that he's got going on here. What exactly are we reading? How does this story work as a story? Um, what kind of narrative really is this? Um, so let's uh, let's look at some examples. Um we're, I'm not going to compare point by point with either earlier stuff or with the published Silmarillion, but I am kind of relying or sort of presuming that you're familiar with these stories from the published Silmarillion and perhaps from other versions of it earlier on. Um, if you are, um, the elements that jumped out at me in reading these passages will probably jump out at you too. About this time, because of the feuds that began to awake, the gods held council, and by their doom, Feanor, eldest son of Finwë, and his household and following, were deprived of the leadership of the gnomes. Wherefore, the house of Feanor was after called the Dispossessed, for this, and because Morgoth later robbed them of their treasure. Finwë and Feanor departed from the city of Tún, and dwelt in the north of Valinor. But Morgoth hid himself, and appeared only to Feanor in secret, feigning friendship." 
What do you notice here? What strikes you about this version of this story? The exile, Feanor, and all that stuff. Anything missing from this version of the story that jumps out at you? Um... Yeah, Silmarils. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, exactly. Several of you are saying is that that Silmarils aren't even being mentioned by, and they were mentioned before, right? And they're alluded to, um, although very distantly, right? I mean, Morgoth later robbed them of their treasure, is a really indirect way of mentioning the Silmarils, right? Uh, it's almost as if the Silmarils are just being lumped in with the rest of the swag that uh, uh, that that Morgoth made off with. You know, most of it, he, of which he fed to Ungoliant. But um, but yeah, Marie, exactly the um, the business about the conflict uh, with Fingolfin, withdrawing his sword on Fingolfin, right? Um, and I agree, Marie. In a sense, that's like a detail, right? I, the basic fact of his exile has been pointed out, but uh, I think it's. Um, it's it's that's kind of a big deal in my mind right about this time because of the feuds that began to awake the gods held council and by their doom feanor and his household and following were deprived of the leadership of the gnomes right all we're told is that there were feuds of some kind feuds like bickering or whatever right some kind of infighting among them and the valar step in and they say all right um we're depriving Feanor of leadership, right? Feanor, you're out. It's like, well, what's the backstory there? I mean, okay, so if there were feuds, did I guess Feanor cause the feuds? I mean, since they seem to have come down hard on Feanor and we're not told that they did anything to anybody else, it was probably his fault. I wonder what he did. I wonder how that came about. I wonder what the feud was. I wonder with whom the feud was. Fingolfin's not even mentioned, right? Um, it's, uh, it's a bit, <laughs> Brian says Thanksgiving dinner in Tyrion was tense. Yeah, feuds almost kind of sounds like that, right? Like, there's a lot of wrangling among the Noldor, you know, they kind of were, they kind of were. Um, it's remarkably reduced, Nick. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, Carrie points out, says, you know, it's, it sounds to her like injustice, as if, uh, the gods could not figure out how to manage these unruly children of Iluvatar. Carrie at least does open up that possibility, right? I mean, I'm kind of willing to give the Valar the benefit of the doubt here. Again, even if I knew nothing else from the story and I read this, I might be willing to say, like, well, you know, it could be a fair call, right? We're not given any details about it, so I don't want to presume that Feanor is getting a, a, a raw deal here, but but Carrie, you're right, that, that possibility is open, right? Um, uh, as, you know, none of his... Um, uh, none of his uh, his his actual faults or actual crimes are enumerated at all. We're just feuds began to awake, right? Uh, Sharon says, uh, "Where's the oath?" And well, he doesn't swear the oath until later, Sharon. But that's actually really significant too. It alludes to—I mean, I didn't quote that passage, but but I I, I could have chosen that one as well. Um, when we get the oath of Feanor and his sons, it says that they took their dreadful oath. But it doesn't explain why it was dreadful. We're not told anything about the. I mean, we're told like the oath like the, was about the Silmarils, and it was it was that they wouldn't let anybody keep any of the any of the Silmarils. But like, what made it particularly dreadful? You know, there's no we're, we don't quote the oath. We don't um, 
um, uh, we don't get uh, um, any uh, uh, like allusion to the like sort of seer like the kind of blasphemy element. You know, I mean, it's just just trust me, it's dreadful, right? This oath, right? That's there's a there's there's a sense in which a lot of the entries in the annals can be kind of in my mind you can kind of add just trust me right trust me this 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 was a big i'm not, I'm not going to explain why this is a big deal but this was this was this this was a big deal right um uh so um uh yeah it's it's um it's kind of fascinating, right? So, okay, so, all right, so, so we can kind of see where we are, right? This is, this is an overview. We're not supposed to get into these stories, right? Um, what I'm going to conclude from this is that if we are sitting here saying, but, but what exactly did Feanor do? What was it like? And how did he feel? And what did we do? Right? If we're looking for that kind of story, we're barking up the wrong. This is not that kind of story, right? This story shows very little interest in giving that to us, right? So my question is, what does it give us? then right let's keep let's keep looking because of course there are some times when it does wax a little poetic tolkien can't help himself at times right we do get some moments uh like this one uh but the first dawn shone upon fingolfin's march and his blue and silver banners were unfurled and flowers sprang under his marching feet for a time of opening and growth sudden swift and fair was come into the world and good of evil as ever happens then Fingolfin marched through the fastness of Morgoth's land, that is Dor Daedaloth, the land of dread, and the orcs fled before the new light, amazed, and hid beneath the earth, and the elves smote upon the gates of Angband, and their trumpets echoed in Thangorodrim's towers. Now, almost all of the... I mean, yeah, Carson says that Fingolfin's march always gives me goosebumps. I know, right? And this is this is still a goosebump-inducing moment, even in the middle of the of this plot summary, right? Um, it's uh, it's it's he. There, there are moments when this kind of stuff shines through, right? The level of detail given in this passage is way more than is necessary for the kind of summary that's being done, right? If this moment, if Tolkien were treating this moment consistently with how he treated, for instance, the banishing of Feanor, this would be like two sentences, right? Um, Even the first dawn shone upon Fingolfin's march gives it a little bit more poetic power, right? Um, Let's see. Let's see if we can do it. It would be something like... At the first rising of the sun, Fingolfin uh, uh, marched across Beleriand. Marched across Beleriand. Um, the light of the sun caused Morgoth's servants to flee, uh, and the, you know, I mean, like we could get the bit about them going right. Okay, Maria is making fun of me. She says it is two sentences. Okay, I know it's two sen- two shorter sentences. I mean, um, but. Um, but anyway, okay, okay. So right, I mean, this is, this is, uh, uh, this is, this could be done in a much more simple and straightforward fashion. This is not a just the facts kind of moment. So we do get these moments where he modulates out of the just the facts uh, version of storytelling. But the fact is, this is an exception. Right, it's not the only exception, but I would say this is the exception to the rule. There are way fewer passages like this in the annals than there are of like the one that we just saw, or worse, 
Here's another one. Fingolfin now saw the saw now the ruin of the gnomes and the defeat of all their houses, and he was filled with wrath and despair, and he rode alone to the gates of Angband, and in his madness challenged Morgoth to single combat. Morgoth slew Fingolfin, but Thorndor recovered his body, and set it under a cairn on the mountains north of Gondolin. There was sorrow in Gondolin when those tidings were brought by Thorndor, for the folk of the hidden city were Fingolfin's folk. Fingon now ruled the royal house of the gnomes. Yeah, Josiah says, Morgoth slew Fingolfin, pains him. Yeah, exactly. Now, now, Josiah, you bring up also a really important point. Um, maybe, right? Perhaps, reading this, if you, especially again, if you, if you, if you haven't joined, if you didn't join us for the other four classes and you're new in this, in this, uh, in this section, you, you might perhaps, I, I could imagine thinking, Maybe this is just because he hasn't really fleshed it out yet, right? Maybe this is sort of the sketchy first version of the story, and then he's going to add like the awesome epic detail of the duel with Morgoth is going to is going to come right as he uh, really digs into the story. Nope, nope. As Josiah is remembering with tears of bitterness, right? We got almost a whole canto of the Lay of Lathian on this. I mean, he spends an entire canto in like a flashback. Um, as they approach, as uh, Baron and Luthien approach Angband, getting ready to steal the Silmaril, right? They're coming up to the gates of Angband. Uh, and Tolkien is like, we now interrupt this narrative to give you a flashback of like the story of Fingolfin coming and beating on the gates of Angband and Morgoth coming out and fighting with him. And he spends hundreds and hundreds of lines uh, on that on that story. Um, it's practically it's practically the entire canto, right? Um, that story of Fingolfin and his duel. His his you know epic duel with Morgoth is very fully fleshed out al- already. So this is not the early seeds of this idea, which hasn't grown yet. This is Tolkien stepping away uh, from that story he's already written. But no, it's not just that he's leaving it out. It's not just that he's telling the story in a slightly less epic fashion, right? Morgoth slew Fingolfin, and wait, not just that. Back up. He was filled with wrath and despair. And he rode alone to the gates of Angband, and in his madness challenged Morgoth to single combat. What's emphasized? What does this narration emphasize about Fingolfin? If this was all we had, if you'd never heard of the story of Fingolfin and Morgoth before, what would you take away? What's the takeaway from this passage? Yes, good madness, wrath, despair... Exactly. Carita says it was pointless. Right. Madness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Michael says that that he went crazy. Yeah, folly, says Tom Hillman. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this, that seems to be the emphasis here, right? Filled with wrath and despair, he rode alone to the gates of Angban. What a moron, right? And in his madness, that in his madness, I mean, look at the structure of things, right? Um, that's one of the only descriptive prepositional phrases we get, right? You know, y- yes, we get of the gnomes and of all their houses, right? Um, he's filled with wrath and despair. Okay, we get that. And then we get in his madness, challenged Morgoth to single combat. It's like one of the only like, glosses on the facts that we're given 
um, filled with wrath and despair, and in his madness challenged Morgoth. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Arthur says it's one way to get back to Valinor fast. Yeah, see, now, Arthur, normally, like, if you read the published Silmarillion, or more still, The Lay of Lathian, and you came away from that story with, like, so, uh, 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 Fingolfin really just wanted to uh, uh, just wanted to get a, a quick one-way trip back to Valinor. Right? He's just like, I'm, I'm out. Right? I want to go back to Valinor, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go. Out. I mean, that would be a ludicrously inappropriate. Uh, I mean, like if somebody read one of those other versions and came away with that as a conclusion, like you'd question them, right? But for this, Arthur, I mean, it, it, it's you can almost make it stick, right? It, this is an act of despair. It's it's like a kind of suicide, folly in any case, right? As as uh, as as Tom says, that's kind of amazing, right? Why, why? So what is he doing? What does this passage accomplish? What story are we? If we're not getting, uh, I mean, so he's left out, on purpose, omitted. Everything that makes this story moving, inspiring. Um, I mean, the duel between Fingolfin and Morgoth is like one of everybody's favorite parts of the Silmarillion, right? But he's left it behind, right? Now, good, Marie, you're right. Marie says it's a suicidal action in any version of the story, but this emphasizes the madness and leaves out the valor. Yes. Yeah, agreed. Agreed, Marie. Um, it's not that nothing. It's not that anything he says here doesn't apply elsewhere. It's just Marie exactly. Which facts is he emphasizing, right? Um, and the facts that he's emphasizing are the madness and despair. Okay, so again, the thing that we need to do here, we can notice the differences, right? We can no- We can. We can. We can observe the stuff that he leaves out. But it's not fair for us to demand of this story what this story is obviously not interested in giving us. Instead, what we need to do is draw conclusions based on what it is, does seem to be willing to give us, right? Um, notice in this passage I just gave you, and this is the, the, the whole paragraph about uh, this incident, what is it interested in? What does it spend the most time talking about? Madness and despair in the first sentence, but that's just the first sentence. There are three more sentences, right? Yes, Brian, good, good. Um, uh, how the elves who were left behind re- reacted to it, Brian Dimmick says. Kimber Nelson says the response to his death. Um, and Kimber Nelson had also pointed out the, the transition of kingship. Yeah, the, the conclusion of this story, right, um, uh, is not like wasn't that a valiant, like, wasn't Fingolfin incredibly valiant, right? That's not the take-home. What's the take-home from here? Fingon now ruled the royal house of the gnomes, right? That's where we end up. Um, but yeah, notice we get more time spent talking about the sorrow of the people of Gondolin about the death of Fingolfin than we get about the death of Fingolfin, right? This version is not interested uh, in his valor it's interested in his the fact that he died, that he went into despair and madness and died, 
and was mourned. Um, so the loss of Fingolfin is emphasized. The people who are left desolate afterwards, the succession of kingship, which follows, right? That that now, so we have, you know, the, the, the rulership of the Noldor devolving from Finway to Feanor, aside from Feanor to Fingolfin, and now down to Fingon, right? Um, yeah, good. Carrie, you're right. Carrie says another huge story is how they got his body back. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, the recovery of the body gets to almost as much play as the as the combat. More, really. Um, as arguably the duel takes three words. Morgoth slew Fingolfin, right? But Thorndor recovered his body and set it under a cairn on the mountains north of Gondolin. More words are given to describing where he was buried than the duel in which he was killed, right? Um, yeah, Tom Hillman... Uh, challenges us to imagine an epitome like this of the charge and death of Theoden and the passing of the kingship to Aemir. Exactly. Yeah, it, that's 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 a, a comparison that really does hit home, Tom. Right. Um, but again, my point is not if if from this discussion the conclusion you're drawing is uh, that we're sort of seeing all the ways in which this is a terrible story. That's not at all my point. Um, my point is not that like. Gosh, doesn't this version of the Silmarillion suck? That's not my point. My point is, he's doing something different. And it's clear that he's very consciously doing something different. He knows how awesome the story of Fingolfin is. This is not lost on Tolkien. This is not Tolkien having a moment where he's like, should I even include that, you know, stuff, extra stuff about Fingolfin? Nah, maybe not. It's not important, right? No, that's not what Tolkien was doing here, right? He's going in a different direction on purpose. He's telling a different kind of story on purpose. Why? What's the purpose? What are we getting here? How do how do we how do we read this? Well, well, well. Let's let's keep going. We'll we'll, we'll return to this. We'll return to this question. Um, another issue with the annals is the uh, another issue is the passing of time. Right. So obviously, a lot of emphasis in the annals on time. Right. With all these things are 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 locked in. A, you know, a year to year progression. Not every single year. Right. But we're 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 doing chronology here. Right. And yet, the passage of time uh, can be kind of awkward. Right. Valiant years are particularly awkward. Um, and if the more you think about it, the more you notice it. We talked about this some when we looked at the annals last time uh, in, in, in the last class with the shaping of Middle-earth. Um, remember, each valley in year is equal to 10 years of the sun. So whenever one year passes um, in, the, uh, in the annals of Valinor, it means 10 years as we would think, a whole decade. Each, each year is a decade of our years. So... When ten years passes, when it says that, like, you know, this is what they did between 1,990 and 2,000 in, you know, the Valley in years, that's a century of our years, right? Okay, so uh, so you'll recall, for instance, that the, uh, the Teleri uh, lingered on the shores of Middle-earth for ten years before they went over to Valinor. That means a century. It means a hundred years of our years, right? So, okay, so we have to keep sort of doing this. Um, it's the the spans of time are kind of awkward, right? The whole 10 to 1 ratio thing, um, he seems, to, it, it seems the impulse would appear to be to sort of encourage us to be thinking in broader terms, 
right? I mean, these are elf years. Everybody involved in these stories is immortal, right? You know, these are these are this is literally like the annal history of the of the undying lands, right? Um, uh, how are you? I mean, to, to, the whole concept of like. It's almost like an oxymoron, a chronology of immortality, right? It's almost an oxymoron, right? Um, And one of the ways in which he kind of captures this is by having that sort of dilation of time. But there are moments in the story where it gets, frankly, awkward. And in particular, the last bit, right? Um, The last ten years... Of the, uh, uh, of the of the of the annals of Valinor, that is the rebellion of the Noldor and the and when the Noldor leave and everything, um, this takes when you you know do the math right, it takes a little short of a century. It takes ninety years to happen between you know when the darkening of Valinor occurs and uh, and when they like burn the ships at Lothgar. You know when they or rather when. Mydros is kidnapped, which is pretty much where the, I, I, I love how we leave my poor Mydros hanging from a cliff you know, like uh, between the two annals, right? We stop the annals of, of Valinor with, with Mydros hanging there by his hand, right? And then in the annals of Beleriand, it's like, we now rejoin Mydros hanging from the cliff, and that's where we start. Um, uh, exactly, Josiah, it ends with a cliffhanger. You're completely completely correct. So anyway, the point is um, obviously there's a little bit more momentum to those later events and it's awkward and again I, we discussed this last time um, uh, we we discussed this last time uh, that, that um, uh, again in the Shaping of Middle-Earth class how some of this stuff is kind of hard to imagine like seriously it took them 10 years to do that um, the annals, the second version of the annals kind of address that issue and we can see Tolkien kind of wrestling with the rapid passage of time in the progression of events, um, but yet also wanting... This is... No, nobody's in a hurry in Valinor, right? Um, and we can see that. So here's a, one passage where I thought that was particularly conspicuous. The great march of the gnomes was long preparing. Fanor's delivered his speech, and everyone's like, Yeah, we're out of here, let's go! The great march of the gnomes was long preparing. The gods forbade, but did not hinder for Feanor had accused them of keeping the elves captive against their wills. At length the host set out, but under divided leadership, for Fingolfin's house held him for king. The host had not gone far, ere it came into Feanor's heart that all these mighty companies, both warriors and others, and great store of goods, would never make the vast leagues into the north, save with the help of ships. Now they went north, both because they purposed to come at Morgoth, and because northward the sundering seas grew narrow, for Toon beneath Teniquitil is upon the girdle of the earth, where the great sea is immeasurably wide. But the Teleri alone had ships, and they would not give them up nor lend them against the will of the Valar. Thus befell, in this year of dread, the grievous battle about Alquilonde, and the kinslaying evilly renowned in song, wherein the Noldor distraught furthered Morgoth's work. But the Noldor overcame the Teleri, and took their ships, and fared thence slowly, along the rocky coasts in great peril, and amid dissensions. Many marched on foot, and others manned the vessels. Okay, so again, in the first version, we had these same events, but they were described much more briefly, and they were just given, like, to the different Valian years. But of course, we had to remember that each one of those years was actually a decade, and so it was. And so it was easy to like on the if you just looked at it on the page, right? It's like okay, you've got 
Feanor comes back and rebels against the Valar, and then the next entry is the Kinslaying, right? But then if you stop and think about it, you're like, was that like a decade later? Seriously? The Kinslaying is like a decade after Feanor delivers his speech? Um, and so Tolkien seems to kind of go back to that. Now, he, he toyed with this. Again, those of you will remember different versions of the Annals of Valinor, where he did translate and decide it was just one year of the sun, not one Valian year. So instead of each, each one of these entries taking a decade, each one had a year. That's still kind of quite a bit of time. Um, in the published Silmarillion, don't you get the vague impression that the speech of Feanor in uh, Tyrion and... Uh, the kinslaying is like on the same day. I mean, you know, and he's in a hurry. Feanor's all like, quick, we must go while the momentum is up and while, you know, before anybody has any second thoughts. Um, whereas here they have literally years to have second thoughts, but still apparently all decide to go through with the thing. Um, so Tolkien here seems to be, uh, um, seems to be, um, <sighs> Tolkien here seems to be returning Basically, he, he he's going back and saying, nah, forget it. It was ten years. It's fine. It's all, These are all valiant years. But he now incorporates the passage of time into the story, right? Um, and he gives some explanations. So, no, the gnomes didn't leave. The Noldor, who are also called gnomes, didn't leave in a, in a hurry, right? They didn't, they didn't haste. Um, they gathered themselves, prepared their great march for a long time, uh, and then they had their deal. With the uh, uh, with the Teleri, right? Um, notice how he's added things like fared thence slowly along the rocky coasts in great peril and amid dissensions. Each one of those elements sort of suggests lots more detailed stories that we're not hearing about, right? I mean, goodness, there could be whole. Each one of those things could be whole episodes in the Silmarillion film project. Not that I'm saying that it will be, but it could be. Right. Um, that is, you know, there's this sense of, boy, a lot happened in there, but I'm passing over most of it. And I'm just telling you, as I've been telling you in this sort of highly, um, uh, you know, sort of superficial summary, what happened. Right. But boy, is there a lot of rich stuff I'm leaving out um, that uh, that 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 element of it. He seems to be building here. Um, so, so again, it's, it's one of the ways in which you can see, uh, I, I was really fascinated by this particular instance, because it's one of the places that where we can see the form of this text, that is the annals, um, actually influencing, it seems to me, Tolkien's storytelling, uh, and leading him to make some alterations to the story that seem connected with the form itself. Um, <laughs> yeah, James says, in all the long preparing, they never thought that they would need ships. Yeah, well, it took, no, it's James, it's just that it took him a decade to work that out. Yeah, I mean, they, they, it's, think of the intense alternate route planning, right? And then he finally came down to, no, no, we've thoroughly analyzed this for 10 years, and uh, and I'm sorry, it's got to be ships. Yeah, 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 no, I think that was it. Um, but notice also another thing. Two passages that I want to... Uh, um, that I want to point out. Tell me what these two passages have in common. One from the Annals of Valinor, one from the Annals of Beleriand. 
The first ages were reckoned as 30,000 years, or 3,000 years of the Valar, whereof the first thousand was before the trees, and 2,000 save nine were the years of the trees or of the holy light, which lived after, and lives yet only in the Silmarils, and the nine are the years of darkness, or the darkening of Valinor. And then 52 to 255, changed to 60 to 455. The time of the Siege of Angband was a time of bliss, and the world had peace under the new light. Beleriand became exceedingly fair, and was filled with beasts and birds and flowers. In this time men waxed and multiplied and spread, and they had converse with the dark elves of the east, and learned much of them. From them they took the first beginnings of, of the many tongues of men. Thus they heard rumor of the blessed realms of the west, and the powers that dwelt there, and many of the fathers of men in their wanderings moved ever westward. What do you notice? What's the emphasis in both of these passages? Right, exactly. The emphasis is on the passage of time and the length of bliss. Right? I mean, we're coming to the end of the Annals of Valinor, right? And we all have to admit, the Annals of Valinor kind of end on a downer, right? I mean, you know, there's the darkening of Valinor and the rebellion of the Noldor, and everything kind of seems to fly apart there at the end. But then we sort of pause and we're like, but hang on, everybody. Look at the big picture, right? Um, the First Ages were 30,000 years long. And, you know, 2,991 of those years were really good years, right? I mean, the, and, and then there were nine bad years, and they were pretty bad, right? But, um, but there were only... There were only nine. Okay, actually, it was, it was 90 of the 30,000. So 2,991 valiant years, which were good years, right? Yeah, ex oh, excellent. Yeah, Co uh, Carson Cole summarizes the point uh, uh, the emphasis in this passage by saying, the shadow is only a small and passing thing. Exactly, exactly, right? Darkening of Eleanor is bad, but, you know, big picture, right? It's totally outweighed uh, by the many, many years of bliss, right? Similarly, in Beleriand, right? By far the biggest chunk of time, right? 52 to 255 years, two whole centuries, right? Um, and notice that wasn't even enough for him. He expands it to four centuries, right? No, no, 200 years of peace. No, 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 400 years of peace, right? And notice what's happening during this peace. Notice how the elves in Middle-earth are being a blessing to the men, that they're hearing rumors of the blessed land and uh, the blessed realm in the west, and uh, uh, they're, they're, they're drawn ever westward thanks to their encounter with the... Gosh, it's almost like the elves are really designed to be there in Middle-earth, enriching Middle-earth, and being there to be, you know, teachers uh, uh, to, the, to the men as they, as they arrive. It's almost like that's kind of how Iluvatar drew it up. But anyway, um, uh, so, okay, so in both taking the second revised, even more emphasized period of bliss here, right, 400 years, things fall apart pretty quickly after that. You know, in less than a century, we're done, 
with the First Age, right? We're, we're, we're going to get the end of Beleriand, less than a century after the breaking of the siege. Um, so, you know, we get basically rounded up. It's We get 450 years, you know, good years, where things are going really quite well. Um, and then we get a bad century after that, right? Uh, so the proportions aren't... Um, aren't uh, 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 quite as dramatic as they are back in the back in the early years, back in the annals of Valinor, but we see the same thing, right? Um, and uh, so it's certainly a good. Jordan Sunderland points out people are all learning new languages. What could be more blissful? Yeah, I agree, Jordan. That's that's basically that is paradise, right? In uh, in 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 Tolkien's world, absolutely. Um, uh, good, good. Um, yeah, Rachel Draper, of course, points out that peacefulness doesn't tend to create good stories, just like that passage in Chapter Three of The Hobbit, right? You know, uh, stories that are good, to, uh, that are uh, you know, times that are good to have and days that are good to spend are, are don't make good tales, right? Um, exactly. Um, whereas the things that are horrid, gruesome, and even uh, you know, horrid, palpitating, and even gruesome uh, may make a good tale, and that's of course where we're going to spend most of our time at the palpitating and gruesome stuff that starts happening in two fifty-five or four fifty-five. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So we see that, but again, I, I'm interested in the fact that uh, he goes out of his way even to the revision of the of the time frame in the Annals of Beleriand um, in order to emphasize. The good times, right? They don't get much play in the narrative, but but uh, but they are dominant. Since we're listing chronology, we have this emphasis of the fa- of how much of the time was really quite awesome. Um, now, I I trust everybody took careful note of the meta narrative elements in the story, right? That this stuff uh, um, that this stuff jumps out at you. Um, But the lords of the House of Finrod were less grim and of kinder mood than the others, and they had no part in the kinslaying. Remember, Finrod equals Finarfin in the later version, right? Um, yet they did not escape from its. They did not escape its curse. Who now refused to turn back? Finrod himself returned, and many of his people with him, and came at last once more unto Valinor and received the pardon of the gods. But Aule, their ancient friend, smiled on them no more, and the Teleri were estranged. Here endeth that which Rumil wrote. Here followeth the continuation of Pengalod. Pengalod of Gondolin. Um, now, if, uh, if you have not yet been trained to have your little ears perk up as soon as you come across a reference in Tolkien to, like, a scribe or, you know, the person who wrote down the text or something like that, uh, it's a good habit to develop because uh, those passages are almost always interesting, uh, I think. Um, and in fact, I think it's so interesting, and my ears were perking up so much when I got to these moments, uh, you know, and thinking it through again this time, that I will actually say... This is my answer to the, to the bigger question I was asking earlier. Why plot summary? Why annals? Why are we doing this? Why is Tolkien wanting to publish this? This way. Here it is. This is the selling point. In my, in my, in my, my, this is my theory. This, I think, is the selling point of the whole thing. Here endeth that which Rumil wrote. Here followeth the continuation of Pengalod. That's the money line right there. Right, that's going to get them lining up at the bookstores, my friends. 
Here endeth that which Rubel wrote. Here followeth the continuation of Pingalod. Notice what all three methods of storytelling that Tolkien has tried in the Silmarillion tradition, the interspersed tales set in a frame, Book of Lost Tales, the freestanding epic stories, or, you know, in poetry in this case, uh, you know, in the Lays of Beleriand, and the plot summary method uh, in The Shaping of Middle-Earth and, uh, and, uh, and The Lost Road. What do all three of them have in common? Authenticity is what they have in common, right? That is, all of them have explanations of origin, where the stories themselves came from, right? The Book of Lost Tales is meant to be a translation of the book that Ariel, or Alfwina, whatever his name's supposed to be, wrote when he... So he comes back to the lands of men, else we wouldn't have the Book of Lost Tales, right? We have the Book of Lost Tales because this random human guy ended up going to the to the land of the elves and he heard the stories and he wrote them all down and then he bring he comes he comes home and he writes down the book in human language right in order to 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 pass on this lore uh, to future generations and that's what we're getting right we're getting a later translation and edition of Ariel Alfwina's book okay so we've get we get in the book of lost tales with the uh, with the epic poems it's less explicit Right, we don't actually get like we don't actually meet the narrator as we do in, with uh, Ariel Elfwina, but still, these are songs that were sung by the ancient elf bards. Right, um, you'll remember there are references to them in the published Silmarillion. Right, um, about the story that was sung about the, that Maglor made about the kinslaying. Remember the reference to that um, in the published Silmarillion. Um, well, Tolkien started writing that poem. Right. Um, so, so okay, so those are survivals of this poetic tradition that grew up around these things. Again, it's, it's, it's less explicit, right? We don't get the frame built into it, but it kind of works, right? And that's, that's an, it's, it's certainly a very good excuse for them being in poetry, right? The very fact that they're in verse gives a kind of authenticity to it, right? Ah, here's the old saga. Here's the old, uh, you know, the old, uh, um, the, the old, what the Elvish bards once sang, uh, right, um, and has been passed down, and this has this has survived. Um, what we get here is historical documents, right? Um, exactly, Marie. Um, with Rumil and Pengalod, we get an elvish origin for the stories, as Marie says, without an explanation of how we get to human transmission. You're right; we don't get that. But what we do get is this sense of authenticity. What are we reading here? Are we reading just like a funky, weird plot summary thing written by some random Oxford professor? Oh, no. Right. When we pick up this book called The Silmarillion, assuming it gets published and assuming anybody picks it up, what 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 are we getting? We are getting authentic elvish history right here, my friends. Right. These are the elves own records of these things as they happened. Right. So. Do they, you know, beef up the stories as we might beef them up? No. And there will be other opportunities to tell them. This isn't the whole of the Silmarillion. There's more stuff. This is just one part of the published Silmarillion. So, so we're going we're gonna to get some more drama and other things. But, Marie, exactly, what we're getting is history. The very flatness of the narration. Um, the very lack of poetic and emotional emphasis 
makes them more authentic, right? This is unbiased recording of history. That's what you're getting here. Isn't that cool? Isn't it pretty neat to have in your hands uh, this history that has come down from these ancient days, in the, in, from the prehistory of men, right? Um, that's, uh, that's pretty cool, right? It works. It works. The, the, the plot summary as a mode adds to the authenticity, adds to its own authority, really, right? I mean, you think about it. So, okay, the Book of Lost Tales is theoretically a found text, but in itself it is a fairy story. It is the very frame of it is a fairy story, right? Human mariner somehow ends up in fairy and hears these stories and comes back, right? Um, so there's... Even the frame itself requires a leap, right? It's... it's, uh, it's, it's it tries to ground the narrative within our own historical, especially the Alfwina stuff, when he's rooting it to particular, to, you know, Anglo-Saxon times, and in particular, even connected with, again, those of you who remember the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 2, will recall that Alfwina, the narrator, was being connected with, uh, with Hengist and Horsa, right? Like, historical figures that everybody knows. So he's trying to ground it in history that we know, but it's still a fairy story. Right. You know, we still have to kind of enter into it. It's not, you know, facts. Right. The epic poems are really cool, but they have not much context. Right. And it's very clear that Tolkien needed context. In fact, his need of context is what inspired the plot summary mode in the first place. The first step in this plot summary movement was the sketch of the mythology in 1930, and that was written explicitly as a piece of background prose to help somebody contextualize the lay of the children of Hurin. When they, when he sent them that poem to read, he just couldn't bear the idea of them not knowing the whole story. They really needed the context in order to get everything. So that's the problem with just having the epic poems, right? So the epic poems can't really stand alone. The Book of Lost Tales is cool, but it itself is still, you know, it's it doesn't still really connect with us. But this, the plot summary model, gives us an authentic document that explains itself, right? Um, this stuff tells the whole story, and it can stand alone, right? That, I think, is what the... So, there is a sense in which you could say, almost perversely, that the very unattractiveness of the plot summary mode justifies the plot summary mode. Like, it is the purpose for the, uh, for the plot summary mode. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, um, <laughs> Karina says that she laughed aloud when I said that Hengist and Horsa is history that everyone knows. Well, Karina, I should say that every English person, know, like, English kids would have grown up knowing about Hengist and Horsa. Um, Americans less so, admittedly. Uh, so perhaps not every, not every American, but uh, the, that wasn't really Tolkien's target audience anyway. Um, okay, with that, let's now segue and spend our last luxurious seven minutes on the other half of my slides. Um, that is, I want to, I want uh, I, I want that. So that's sort of the bigger picture that I wanted to give of the annals and where they fit. And we'll be coming back to this and thinking about as we move into the next bits, um, next uh, for, for 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 the next class. But um, 
but I do want to, I, I, I have a few sort of content notes that I want to make um, of particular passages and moments that jumped out, you know, elements of the story that are kind of developing or, um, or that seem to me particularly interesting and noteworthy. So I'm going to try to hit upon those briefly uh, as, we, as we go through. And I, I'm sure that some of these uh, uh, caught your attention too. Um, I'm not going to spend as much time on this one as I had originally planned, I think, but it's still worth, it's still at least uh, worth um, uh, touching on. At the beginning, Iluvatar, that is, Allfather, made all things. Afterwards, the Valar, or powers, came into the world. These are nine, Manwe, Olmo, Aule, Orome, Tulkas, Ose, Mandos, Lorien, and Melko. Of these, Manwe and Melko were most puissant and were brethren, and Manwe is lord of the Valar and holy. But Melko turned to lust and pride and to violence and evil, and his name is, I love the implied progression there, right? Lust and pride first, violence and evil second. Remember, foot. I always feel the need to footnote, Anna Marie will appreciate this, I always feel the need to footnote the word lust when Tolkien uses the word lust. Tolkien almost never uses the word lust in the sense in which we, the only sense in which we now use the word lust, that is referring to sexual desire or, you know, to a a sort of corrupt sexual desire. Um, Lust means desire, strong desire, any kind of desire for anything. Um, And it's clear that that's what he means there. Anyway, okay, uh, right. Melko turned to lust and pride, then violence and evil, ere the world's devising, then the other five. And Orome was born, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, and devising, and his name is not a curse, and it's not uttered, but he is called Morgoth. Fine. Orome, Tolkas, Ose, and Lorien were younger in the thought of Iluvatar, ere the world's devising, than the other five. And Orome was born of Yavanna, who is after named, but he is not Aule's son. It's like, Scandal and Valinor, but no, that's not that. That's not the goal. Uh, okay, the queens of the Valar were Varda, Manwe's spouse, and Yavanna, whom Aule espoused after in the world in Valinor. Vanna the Fair was the wife of Orome, and Nessa, the sister of Orome, was Tolkas's wife. By this point, even you know, it's, it, you know, unless you are super familiar with the Silmarillion tradition, um, you're wanting a flowchart already at this point, and uh, don't worry, I, we, we don't need to map out everything. It's fine. And Uinin, the Lady of the Seas, was wife of Ose. Vyra the Weaver dwelt with Mendos, and Este the Pale with Lorien. No spouse hath Olmo or Melko. No lord hath Nienna the Mournful, Queen of Shadows, Manwe's sister, and Melko's. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, what, um, what's going on here? What do we see about the Valar? What, what do you notice? About the Valar? Um, <laughs> Karita asks, is Nienna single because she's mournful? Or is she mournful because she's single? <sighs> neither. Neither, Karita. I know you're joking. I know you're joking. Um, but it is kind of funny, Karita, the, the way that he brings that up in the context um, of, like, he starts with, she has no husband, right? Uh, and, and in the context saying that she's, that she's, uh, that she's, she's mournful. Okay, good. Marie, excellent. Uh, they can still have kids and brothers and sisters in this version. Okay, so um, this has been a thing from the Valar from the beginning. Uh, that is that they not only get married, but they procreate, right? So we still have procreation among the Valar. We still are um, 
we still are having uh, brothers and sisters among the Valar, right? Like, it's not just that... So Manwe and Melko are not just, like, akin or peers. They're brothers, right? And Nienna is their sister, right? So the th- they're siblings, Nienna and Manwe and, uh, and Melko. Um, and... Uh, good. Josiah points out that we learn their familial relations before we learn their domains. Um, yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? Um, uh, you're right. We, we, what do we know about Aule at this point? Um, yeah, we know like his uh, sort of peculiar family history, right? We um, um, we don't know what that he's connected with like the earth or craftsmanship or anything like that. Right. Exactly. We know that he, he married Yovana after she already had a kid. Right. Yeah, exactly. So Yovana like marries the single mom and, or something. Right. That's all we know about LA. So Josiah, that's a great observation. Um, the annals place the emphasis on the relationships among the Valar, right? Who's related to whom, who's married to whom, who is whose kid, that's what matters, right? Oh, and P.S., they also, they relate to, like, the world in these other various ways, right? And we'll kind of get to that. Some of them are mentioned, like Lady of the Seas, we get that with Uinen right away, right? Whereas Este is apparently the Lady of Pallor, I guess, that's kind of, that's kind of getting the shaft, I can't help but think, but, um, anyway, uh, um, Okay, so intense focus on the relationships among the Valar. Um, do we see him moving away from the having kids thing? I don't know. Um, no, I mean, no, I mean, they, they are still having children, but notice the one element which is new in this version, as Christopher emphasizes Orome, Tolkas, Ose, and Lorien were younger in the thought of Iluvatar air the world's devising than the other five. Okay, so the youth and age of them, so Orome, Tokus, and Ase, and Lorien are younger than Ulmo, and Manwe, and Aule, and Orome. Um, or sorry, not Orome. I included him in both categories. Uh, Mandos, right? One, one of the old guys, right? Um, so some of them uh, you know, so what exactly that means? In what sense they are? Yeah, Karita asked, "What does that even mean?" I'm not even sure what that even means exactly. Um, Air the world's devising suggests that they're right. So Karita's saying, "Does does he think of them as younger, or he thought of them later?" It suggests he thought of them later, right? That like first, Iluvatar comes up with Manwe and Olmo and Aule and. Mandos and Lorien and Melko, uh, and presumably Varda and Yavanna. Uh, and then later on, he like says, Hey, I've got an awesome idea. Orame, Tolkas, Ase, and Lorien. Oh, shoot, I include Lorien above the categories again. Anyway, anyway, but you see what I'm saying, right? That seems to be the implication that they're younger in the thought of Iluvatar, that he they, 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 came, they came in more recently. Tom Hillman thinks it sounds suspiciously like the Titans and the Olympians, and I agree with you, Tom. It does sound suspiciously like the Titans and the Olympians. 
Um, you know, Tom, this, I, in my mind, this is kind of another example. I think, um, people, Tolkien fans are super respectful of Tolkien and things that he says. Um, you know, Tolkien is quick to say, like, he never really liked that Mediterranean stuff, right? Like, Greek and Roman stories never really did it for him. You know, it's the Norse stuff. So a lot of Tolkien fans really just kind of blindly follow Tolkien's lead there and be like, oh, yeah, you know, Greek and Greek and Latin stuff is not, you know, don't look in Greek and Latin stuff for perils. It's not about the Greek and Latin stuff. It's about it's about the Norse stuff, right? Mm, yeah, he read classics at Oxford. I mean, he, he was, I mean, he dropped out of classics, right, and uh, and did, uh, you know, uh, literature and philology instead. But, um, but when he went to Oxford, he went to Oxford for Latin and Greek. Um, he knew his Latin and Greek stuff really, really well. Uh, and I think to, to, to sort of ignore the fact that any of that stuff had any impact on him and that he had, you know, he maintained any associations with that is, uh, um, is kind of, kind of silly. And yeah, as Tom adds, preferring the one to the other does not mean issuing the one for the other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, good. But yeah, Marie says it suggests that not all the Einar were created at once, that there was a process in the timeless halls. Yeah, Marie, it's one of the only times that we get that glimpse of Iluvatar doing different things at different times, certainly with, with the, with the Valar themselves. Right. Um, and in a sense, that seems connected with the familial relationships, right? That that is like like Orame, who is the child of Yavanna, suggests also a kind of process, right? That sort of things start. We've got the like the Yavanna process, which leads to the Orame thing, right? Um, it also suggests a kind of process, uh, you know, a, a causal relationship among the things that they are uh, that they are connected to. Um, okay, all right. So that's all kind of interesting stuff. We're, we're really focused on those relationships and still we're okay with children. Um, who else is there? With these great ones came many lesser spirits, beings of their own kind, but of smaller might. These are the Vanamore, the beautiful. Okay. And with them also were later numbered their children begotten in the world. Now, um, our pronouns are not um, perfectly clear, so... With them also were later numbered their children. Now, technically, the antecedent of they is the Vanamore, the beautiful. Um, but I assume that they actually leaps over that and refers back to the great ones, right? Back to the Valar themselves, that their children, the children of the Valar begotten in the world, are of divine race, who are many and fair. Maybe the Vanamore are going about begetting children in the world of divine race, many and fair. Probably so. Um, um, yeah, Yana's asking, is this the Maya? Mm, the Maya art? No. I mean, yes, but not yet, right? That is, the concept of the Maya, that, 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 that word isn't there yet, right? Um, this is what we have, right? He's getting there, but he's not there yet. Notice there are two different orders of being here. The Vanamore and the Valarindi. The Vanamore, the lesser spirits. Those are the clearly the ones which he will later call Maiar, right? But then you also have those of divine race in the world. You also have the Valarindi, okay? Um, so you can have 
people who are begotten by the gods, but are kind of... Who are we talking about here? Can somebody give me an example of a Valorindi that we know? Who's a Valorindi? Any Valorindi you can think of from the Silmarillion or the Lord of the Rings? Aonwe? Presumably. Yes, as he is a child of Manwe. Probably begotten after the world was made. Several of you are suggesting Tom Bombadil. Nah. No. Now, Tom Bombadil has to be one of the lesser spirits, a being of, of their own kind but smaller might. I, th- I think that Tom Bombadil is a Vanimore. Goldberry. Yes, exactly. Goldberry. Goldberry is clearly the, a. She's the daughter of the river, right? Who's the river? <laughs> uh, so is the river Vanamore, and Goldberry is a is a is a uh, is a Valorindi. No, I could live with that, right? Remember, it, 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 if you think this is irrelevant, right? Remember, this is where we're going after this, right? This is the text that Tolkien is going to sort of push to one side of his desk and start writing the Fellowship of the Ring, right? So we're right there. We're writing Tom Bombadil and go totally relevant. Now, we already have the Tom Bombadil poem, of course. I, mean, I know they already exist in advance and everything. Um, but when he brings them in to the Fellowship of the Ring, you know, to this world, this is, uh, uh, this is, this is the frame that we have for this. Huon, that's an interesting suggestion, Nick. I can buy that. I can buy that. So yeah, I would say Tom Bombadil. Exactly good, Josiah. Tom Bombadil is is fatherless, right? Uh, so yes, oldest and fatherless, so he can't be Valorindi. Absolutely. Um, uh, so uh, so yes, yeah, so um, definitely Goldberry. Uh, uh, Marie Luthien. Yeah, sure, she counts. She counts. Um, uh, she is she is uh, uh, of divine race, begotten in the world. I mean, she's like. Half Valorindi, right? But yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, good. Okay, all right. So we have some, so we have some, some kind of kind of. But this distinction is a really interesting one to me, um, and the fact that that distinction um, gets dropped later on. So he's going to drop before we get to the published Silmarillion. Tolkien's going to drop not only the whole gods begetting children among themselves, like Orome being the son of Yavanna thing, but we're also going to be dropping. God's having children at all, except for Melian, right? Melian's going to carry on having children with mortals, but she's going to become the only one, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> Tevildo, Prince of Cats. Well, Arthur, I guess if we count Huan, we'd have to count Tevildo, huh? Um, yeah, good. Okay. Um, all right, one more, and then I'll, I'll, we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. Um, last one, last one for tonight. I'm already keeping you over here. Um, Yavanna often reproached the Valar for their neglectful stewardship. Wherefore, on a time, Varda began the fashioning of the stars, and she set them aloft. Thereafter, the night of the world was beautiful, and some of the Vanamor strayed into Middle-earth. 
Among these was Melian, whose voice was renowned in Valmar. She was of Lorien's house, but she returned not thither for many years, and the nightingales sang about her in the dark woods of the western lands. Okay, so, confirmation. Melian is a Vanamore, right, which would mean that her daughter Luthien would be at least half Valarindi. Um, the Vanamore, we've had this concept from the beginning, from the Book of Lost Tales onward, the Valar have each had their people about them, right? Like the, the and, and this seemed to be, in the, again, back at the beginning, Book of Lost Tales uh, era, Tolkien is doing a lot of myth of explanation, right? So where did all those stories about, like, all those sylphs, those air spirits come from? Right, all those, all those, and what about the the story, uh, the all the stories about like spirits of the earth and like dryads from the trees and things like that? Where do those stories all come from? Well, they're all derived from the people of the, because they have people, right? So there are spirits of the air, minor spirits of the air, uh, who are Manway's people, who are called by some sylphs, right? So like stories about sylphs and brownies and dryads and all that kind of thing. Those are all derived from. The you know those are all names that are given to the people of the different uh, of the different Valar. So that concept um, goes back to that kind of myth of expl- explanation stuff. Um, did I say myth of exploration before? I probably did. Anyway, uh, it goes back to the myth of explanation stuff that we get early on. Um, we're not getting that anymore, but the people are still there, right? But they're they're now being categorized differently and presented somewhat differently. And of course, Millian is plainly put among them. But again, notice, what's the emphasis? What's the point of this passage? Notice that um, we get the reference to the neglectful stewardship of the Valar, which seems to me important, right? Um, The Valar aren't nearly so dopey in the annals as they were in the Book of Lost Tales, right? The Valar have really gained in gravitas and respect as we've gone through, um, but they still make mistakes, right? Um, They still, they're not perfect. They still screw up their stewardship of the world. Um, and if they screw up in this way, we can think that they probably screw up in other ways. So this is an indictment of the Valar and does prompt us to think just because we're still calling them the gods in this story doesn't mean that we should think of them as perfect and their plans as always awesome, because they're not. Um, and that's made very explicit here. But again, notice, this passage, just like the whole the Fingolfin passage we were looking at before, um, this uh, passage is not all that interested in the neglectful stewardship. It mentions it, right? Um, but it spends more time talking about Melian and her nightingales than it spends talking about the neglectful stewardship of the Valar, right? So we just kind of touch on that, and then we move on. All right. Um, I'm going to let you guys go um, so that you can sleep, or uh, good morning, Yana. Um, but... Um, Sorry, Giannis in, uh, in, in in Europe. So he's one of our very faithful people who gets up at what time? Three o'clock in the morning uh, to uh, start class with us. Um, you still want to sleep some more? Uh, good, good. I'm glad you'll still sleep some more, Yana. 325, yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, uh, sorry, that's dedication, folks. Yana has always shown uh, wonderful dedication. Next time, we're going to do the Aina Lindale and the Hlamas. This is still part of the to-be-published Silmarillion, okay? Um, so the, the Aina Lindale and the Hlamas for next time. Look forward to talking that. Keep in mind the stuff that we talked about, about the Silmarillion picture that we're putting together here, and we'll have some, uh, we'll have some more uh, fun discussions of 
what is the Silmarillion in Tolkien's mind as we continue to move forward? And I, I will come back to some of my other points about the annals. We'll, 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 we'll touch on a few of the things that I didn't get to here tonight, but I got most of them. I'm happy with that. Anyway, thanks, everybody. Good night. See you guys next week. Bye now.